America's Best presents Portland Pride Soccer. Tonight's action brought to you by 7-Eleven. Also by Coin TV Channel 6. And by Cellular One. And by Supercuts. Good evening and welcome to Portland's Memorial Coliseum for tonight's opener in the inaugural season of the Continental Indoor Soccer League. Very exciting to have indoor soccer or soccer of any kind back in the city of Portland at the professional level. 1990, the last time we saw it when the Portland Timbers finally folded up shop and went away. The Continental Indoor Soccer League makes up seven pro franchises around the United States and Mexico. Yes, one team from Monterey. But tonight, Portland takes on the Sacramento Knights in the opener, again, of the inaugural season. We'll come back and talk about soccer and have the opening uh, matchup, opening kickoff, right after this quick timeout. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Oh, man, can you tell what decade we're in? That lead-up music, my goodness. How you doing? It's uh, Tim Hamlin, your pal, your de doctor of defunct, and your uh, reverend of relocation. It's uh, Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast <laughs> that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming back again this week. We appreciate it. And, um, you know, we get some, uh, some nice email once in a while. Uh, actually, quite often, uh, I can't uh, complain. Uh, most of uh, most of you are are, are very uh, uh, just uh, generous with your comments and uh, uh, great stuff. And sorry, we can't get back to all of them all the time. Uh, but we got one a couple of uh, a couple of months back, and I just I could not avoid it because the subject said CISL Indoor Soccer Portland Pride Premier Soccer Alliance Portland Pythons. Right there, you had me. Uh, you had me right there in the subject line. Hello, Tim. My name is Rob Hawksford, and I have professional indoor soccer stories to share. I work with the Portland Pride and Portland Pythons from 1993 to 1998. I started out as a game day volunteer and completed my career as the general manager for the indoor soccer club. Please let me know if you're interested in my story. And boy, oh boy, was I. Uh, it couldn't have been more than a few minutes after receiving that email that I responded uh, in the positive form to uh, Mr. Hawksford. And uh, and here is uh, the result of that um, extended uh, uh, set of emails. Uh, Rob is our guest this week, and we're going to be talking about the Continental Indoor Soccer League again. Yes, we have done so uh, in a bunch of previous episodes. Uh, for example, uh, our uh, friend Ken Tomach, uh, who... Uh, uh, was our um, episode 39 uh, guest, Tomash, I think is really how you say it. I get all excited there, but, uh, you know, it was a fun conversation about the Indianapolis Twisters, also known as the Indiana Twisters for a year or so. Uh, and of course, you cannot forget our uh, our conversation with the uh, the founder and the commissioner of the CISL, Ronnie Weinstein, from our episode number 176. He was also part of our uh, episode 166 about the LA Lasers and the MISL, but I digress. Uh, the CISL, a fascinating little, uh, 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 I, I wouldn't call it, I think it's more than a footnote in uh, in pro soccer history uh, in the 1990s. And uh, as you'll hear in our conversation coming up with Rob, um, you know, the late 80s, early 1990s uh, was a very, um, 
no other word to say it is dark time for uh, American soccer fans, pro soccer fans in particular. Uh, the NASL pretty much uh, breathed its last around 1985 or so. Uh, the uh, World Cup uh, wasn't announced as coming to the United States until 1991 and obviously didn't happen here until 1994. And the promise or the premise of a new pro league uh, wasn't uh, going to kick in until well, – was actually I think it was supposed to start in 95 uh, or maybe even 94 for that matter. I think it was supposed to be 95, but it didn't start until 1996. So really from 85 to 96, uh, the professional soccer scene in this country, as we've talked about on a number of occasions with other guests – uh, was it wasn't uh, it, w- it was kind of a gut punch, uh, frankly, if, if you had been a fan of the NASL and and it kind of just vanished overnight. Yeah, there were some 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 really good uh, smaller, let's call them really uh, honestly more semi-professional leagues, the American Professional Soccer League, the Western Soccer and Alliance, and um, you know the uh, the MPSL was uh, keeping the um, indoor game alive after the MISL itself, uh, then renamed MSL. In the early 90s, kind of uh, petered out. Um, uh, the Sizzle, uh, uh, which is a Southwestern kind of league. Lots of little small uh, efforts and stuff to sort of keep things uh, alive. But uh, it was certainly nowhere near uh, the grand Klieg lights of the NASL prior and what would become the uh, Major League Soccer effort uh, circa 1996. But this uh, this uh, bright little light uh, known as the Continental Indoor Soccer League was really fun and interesting and it filled a gap. Um, and we'll get into that history uh, in Portland, Oregon, where there were two franchises. Uh, and Rob will t- uh, walk us through uh, the, the journey there, just kind of starting as a sort of a fan slash volunteer um, with the uh, Portland Pride, which was uh, uh, ensconced in the Memorial Coliseum up there from 93 till uh, 97. And then uh, we'll also get into the uh, interesting segue into what became the Premier Soccer Alliance uh, starting in 1998, that uh, lasting uh, all of uh, two years. And then that became uh, something known as the World Indoor Soccer League or the WHISTLE, which is probably one of the best acronyms uh, in all of pro sports, both past and present. Um, and uh, the name of the team then became the Portland Pythons, uh, and they upgraded themselves. They moved over to uh, what was then known as the Rose Center, now known as the um, uh, the, the Moda Center, or the Rose Garden, I think it was. Yeah, the Rose Garden, uh, and now the uh, known as the Moda Center, still there, right across the street from each other. Uh, but this is a story of uh, the 1990s. You hear it in the music. Uh, you'll understand the dynamic of pro soccer uh, during this time. Uh, and uh, in 1996, when MLS uh, got started up, uh, the indoor game kind of uh, started to peter out itself. Uh, this is a story about uh, arena owners, uh, the NBA and uh, the NHL in particular, uh, who jointly own teams, too, uh, looking to fill dates in the summer. Uh, and uh, this is a story of keeping the a professional game alive in whatever form or shape uh, possible in Portland, as we now know, right, is uh, was both the um, uh, the uh, the soccer city USA for quite some time during the NASL days and certainly has reignited that uh, and done a very good job, a very strong and masterful job of uh, papering over, I guess, this sort of lost decade 
uh, now with the new uh, and ongoing version of the Portland Timbers uh, in Major League Soccer. But our our uh, pointing of uh, of historical um, remembrances this week is going to the CISL and the PSA indoor soccer. It is with our, our guest this week, Rob Hawksford. Uh, stay tuned. You will enjoy. And that clip, let's say, uh, came from um, that was the uh, first ever game uh, in uh, Portland um, Pride history, the CISL. Uh, that was uh, when was that? That was um, it was in. Oh, my goodness. I should have this at the top of my uh, the top of my uh, tip of my tongue here. It's June 19th, 1993. The Portland Pride against the Sacramento Knights, the inaugural game of the Pride. Uh, it was Portland 11, Sacramento 8 uh, was the final score. That's on COIN TV, Channel 6, K-O-I-N. And uh, that was the dulcet tones of Michael Convery, uh, which you did not hear uh, and uh, was a voice persistently uh, in um, both Pride and Python's games for the years to come, uh, was KFXX radio uh, jock morning guy Steve Dream Weaver. Uh, who is the uh, color analyst uh, on those broadcasts. And I believe Dream Weaver had uh, a, a couple of cups of coffee broadcasting games in uh, Portland for uh, the Timbers, um, uh, both outdoor and indoor when they were in the NASL. So there you go. That's the setup. Uh, and uh, we look forward to bringing you our great conversation with Rob Hawksford coming up in a few moments time. First, though, a quick shout out. Uh, to our pal Dean Mitchell, who we have um, uh, not uh, uh, promoted a whole lot of late, and we want to correct that now in our uh, our promotion, of course, for his great site, SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Uh, promo code GOODSEATS for 15% off all of your purchases. And uh, as we've talked about many, many episodes before, um, SportsHistoryCollectibles.com uh, is – uh, an amazing uh, a center, a place, a, a, an array of offerings in uh, all kinds of forgotten sports memorabilia um, you, from all kinds of football leagues, baseball, soccer, basketball, hockey, various miscellaneous sports. Uh, and we're talking programs and pennants and uh, media guides and uh, uh, schedules and all kinds of stuff, uh, ticket stubs, uh, magazines. Um, jerseys, even postcards, all kinds of stuff. It's a, it's a, it's a treasure trove, uh, all kinds of new inventory coming in by the, uh, by the week. And again, your 15% off promo incentive is that code good seats, uh, at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Check them out and check them out regularly. Cause there's lots of great stuff there. Very, fairly priced, I would say, uh, and very well lit. Uh, the descriptions are fantastic and the photography of all the items. So you, you'll you know with confidence what you're going to get. And uh, Dean will make sure that you get them uh, in um, uh, in a speedy fashion as well as all in one piece. Again, sportshistorycollectibles.com, promo code GOODSEATS for 15% off. Thank you, Dean. Thanks for your patience and your support of the show. And uh, why don't we now uh, move right along into the world of 1990s sizzle soccer, shall we? Here's our conversation we have with uh, Rob Hawksford. Let's talk Portland indoor soccer back in the 90s. Our conversation from just a few weeks back. Thanks uh, for listening. And uh, please, as always, enjoy. Enjoy. 
this CISL thing, we, we've gone into it a, a couple of different with a couple of different nibbles um, with uh, uh, a couple of folks, including uh, Ronnie Weinstein, the uh, the guy who largely helped create this thing. Um, but why don't we kind of start from uh, the start? How what are you doing in 1989, 1990 that you have uh, become ensnared in this new fledgling thing called the Continental Indoor Soccer League? Yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, my soccer background, uh, much like yours, I was a huge NASL fan. I'm originally originally from Seattle, Washington, and I grew up with the old Seattle Sounders of the NASL. And uh, that was like a passion from the very beginning, which since I was seven years old, basically, we used to go to the games at Memorial Stadium in the Kingdom and did all these things with um, the NASL as far as following him as much as I could and going to games and you know, basically got down to Portland, Oregon for a game up to Vancouver, BC. And I live in Portland now and I have for a lot of years. Uh, but back to your original question. Um, well, so, so I'm sorry. So you you okay. essentially were one of these original Cascadia Cup kind of guys, right? Yes. You were sort of experiencing that sort of first generation of stuff, even though it wasn't the, even there wasn't even such a thing back in the day. But but yeah, yeah. NASL fans, it was sort of this sort of Garden of Eden of unbelievableness because people in New York and the East coast kind of, it's like, what is this fertile territory known as the Pacific Northwest? Yeah. Yeah. It was fantastic back in the day. Um, yeah. I would get down to Memorial stadium and see, uh, you know, the teams with Jimmy Gabriel and uh, Dave Gillett and Mike England and uh, John, big John Rollins played up front. I mean, there was some incredible players and I was, you know, all of seven or eight years old. And I mean, it was incredible. And then when you go down to Portland, you know, you're seeing a, a really very fanatical kind of group of fans down there that really were passionate. And so, and even going up to Vancouver, BC and watching the uh, Whitecaps play up there, um, it was nerve wracking as a kid, because I, I think at that age, you're, you're not really fully realizing, um, you know, how intense these uh, adults are at the game. As a kid, I just wanted to watch the players play. I still play soccer in my 50s today. I've always played and I was very much um, wanting to just get better and and learn all the, everything I could about the game. But the, yeah, back to your point, I mean, the the crowds, the atmosphere for the original Cascadia Cup, it was, it was amazing. I mean, it really was. And I was very happy, you know, that I got to go down to Portland in my young years or up to Vancouver, BC in my young years um, to to witness that. And I still watch the Cascadia Cup games now down here in Portland or go travel up to Seattle where my family still lives. Um, a lot of my relatives are still up there. And um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's really cool that the MLS figured it out um, that they needed to get all three of these teams in the MLS as we know it today. And um, yeah, the history is incredible on that side. But uh, yeah, so I basically um, went through that as a youth. And then what really got me going was um, I was starting to bump elbows a little bit with some of the old Seattle Sounders. I'd go to Northwest Soccer Camp that Cliff McGrath, very well-known um, individual in Pacific Northwest, he had a soccer camp and I went there as a kid. And so, you know, I'm meeting Tony Chersky and some of the other starters for the Sounders who came up and helped coach at those camps. And that made a big influence on me. And then uh, played high school soccer. And then uh, another big, big thing that I was a part of that I thought was really cool from grassroots up in Seattle was uh, they had the thing called FC Seattle. So right after the NASL folded, they pulled in the Western Soccer Alliance and there was a Portland team. There was a Seattle team. There was, you know, some California teams. And um, they built this program called FC Seattle. So you had one pro team and under the pro team you had six or seven minor league teams. And so for us to keep our college eligibility, we didn't sign any contracts. We just played in the city league. But then again, I'm, I'm, I'm 
you know, rubbing elbows with some fantastic players and coaches. And it was, it was just a great experience. And then um, went on to play for Bernie Fagan, who was part of the old Portland Timbers NASL team uh, at Warner Pacific College um, down in Portland here where I live now. And um, Bernie brought me in. And again, I'm just completely enamored. I'm, I'm playing and, and being coached by, you know, former NASL players that I used to go and watch all the time. And Bernie was uh, Bernie was great. I'm still good friends with him. I still go to lunch with the guy, with other players from the team. He's still here. He's still around. He's an ambassador for the Timbers down here for, uh, you know, the whole city of Portland. And he's just a fantastic individual. And then... Um, Another person that I rubbed devils with was uh, John Bain. And John Bain played in the old NSL for the old Portland Timbers. And so here's how I cross. This is what got me going with the Portland Pride. And I'll come at full circle with the uh, indoor soccer. So John Bain and I, we coached at Mountain View High School in Southern Washington, in Vancouver, Washington. And we had the high school team. He coached the varsity and I had the JV team. And, um, you know, John Bain had just recently come out of the outdoor pro circuit and was kind of settling down and maybe playing a little bit indoor here and there and just kind of like looking for stuff to do. So he, he and I were coaching at the high school and that was in the late 80s, 89, 90, 91. And then wouldn't you know it, the CISL pops up in 1993 and uh, the Portland franchise, they basically tapped John Bain to uh, coach the uh, CISL Portland Pride team. And I'm coaching with the guy and where I got my original start with the Portland Pride indoor soccer team was John had asked another guy by the name of Jeff Brooks and myself to see, see if we'd be interested in working game day operations. They just needed help at the games, you know, for the Memorial Coliseum back in the day. And so that's where it all started. I got on board with that right away, got maybe a hundred bucks to show up on a given Friday or Saturday night or sometimes a Wednesday night. And uh, the CISL was born. Yeah, so it's actually helpful and important to kind of uh, uh, tell our audience a little bit about sort of the um, uh, the I guess you'd call it sort of crazy patchwork of quote unquote professional soccer during this era, right? Because sure. the NASL, obviously, we all know, you know, uh, the, was kaput by '85. Uh, the MISL was um, uh, I I wouldn't say ascendant, but it was certainly stable and significant enough. It was uh, sort of making. Uh, itself known and 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 frankly for the, the latter part of the, the 80s right it was if you will really the only if you could call it that top tier professional soccer being played in this country it's a whole other sort of conversation about sort of the fans went indoor or outdoor all that kind of stuff but the, soldiering on right there was these sort of things called the western soccer alliance which also had an east coast uh, uh, uh mirror image of itself um with the, I guess it was the APSL or it was called the right. ASL for a, a, a yep. cup of coffee, all that kind of stuff. Washington Diplomats name came back, all that stuff. There was a championship played between these two once in a while uh, and all kinds of sort of fits and starts. And then the background also is, you know, 1994, uh, obviously the U.S. World uh, was getting the World Cup. So that was kind of announced in 91, 92 ish. Right. And then the 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 drumbeat of, well, FIFA wants a professional top tier Division One outdoor league again. Um, mm -hmm. But th those are we call them kind of the dark ages. We, we soccer fans. Right. Because it was like they, these 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 players and, and you're actually getting to coach and you still know them and stuff. And and weirdly, you're actually getting to, you know, be a professional with them after having seen them in the stands just a few years prior. Yeah. It's, a, it's a weird dynamic because we talked about it before, but in the late 80s, it was kind of almost um, I think a lot of soccer fans in this country felt abandoned bewildered and and just kind of 
didn't know what to do and they wanted to soldier on maybe in the shadows until maybe something else comes up later on. Yeah, for sure. I, I remember that time too, because I was very upset when um, the Sounders basically closed up shop. And again, I'm still living in Seattle before Portland at this time. It's 1983 and they, they're shutting the doors on the program. And so the NSL lasts a couple more years and it was a very small shell of a, what it was in the past. But I started thinking that same thing. I'm like, okay, where's everybody going to play? Where's everybody going? You know, World Cups are still cycling through every four years. Um, and I, I was at that point, too, where it was like, um, I played college soccer. I was at a point where I was like, well, certainly I've got nowhere else to play. I don't think I was good enough. I'll just be honest. I don't think it was good enough to get to the next level. But a lot of the people that I played against or with were getting to that next level. But um, there wasn't a lot to choose from. And that's where... Um, the FC Seattle thing came into play. Portland Timbers were in that league for a little bit in the Western Soccer Alliance, like you're, we were mentioning. Um, and yeah, it was it was a lost era. It was really bizarre. And then so the link, when I look back at my career with what I did with soccer as a whole, um, I was I was in my 20s, maybe early 30s when we're talking about this gap, you know, between the NASL the old league and then the MLS. And there was a lot of, uh, a lot of different leagues in between and people trying to get things going. I, I appreciate admire all those folks who <laughs> really tried to put something out there to keep, keep the ball rolling. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was a fun time for me. And I was very fortunate to have met and, you know, got to know a lot of these guys that I used to go down the, you know, the old stadiums to watch when I was a kid and now I'm working with them at the Portland Pride, or I'm coaching with them, or one of my coaches was in the old NASL and played next to George Best and Canalia and Cruyff and Pelé. And I mean, the list goes on. I mean, it was it was kind of surreal to me when I look back on it. Well, let's also also part of this background, too, is is the early 90s. The MISL was starting to wobble to the point where they dropped the indoor from their name, Major Soccer League. There was sort of talk of which is sort of a pipe dream for a number of different entities over the years of trying to be sort of outdoor and indoor. You shed the indoor name. Uh, I think that soldiered on for right two years or so. Um, so I, so the indoor thing was now, you know, and the AISA had kind of grown up into sort of this, it was a challenger, you know, second tier indoor league. And then it, it changed to the NPSL. So there was definitely this, still this winter thing, albeit sort of, I guess, winnowing or uh, maybe losing some of its initial, no pun in St. Louis steam um, mm-hmm. <laughs> from its original league. So, okay. So we're talking early nineties now amidst that backdrop, both outdoors and indoors. Um, what do you know of this CISL uh, when uh, you get this opportunity? Uh, are you excited? Is it truly, do you feel like it's pro? Uh, do you have an arched eyebrow given all the uh, chock-a-blockness that's been going on in, in pro soccer over the years uh, around this time? What's your what's your inkling, or is it just a gig and it sounded fun? Yeah, I think it was more at the beginning, more of a gig and sounded like fun. I, and later on, as we'll get in this conversation, I, I started learning more about the business and really how that CISL was uh, put together and formulated. But yeah, it sounded like fun to me. Um, good friends with John Bain, and he asked for some help, and I was more than happy to do it. I really wanted to get into that area where I could see what the professional players were like in person closer, you know, to the field and around this, this whole thing with 
how the athletes hold themselves up and how do they, and I knew some of the, I actually played college soccer against a good handful of these guys, but that was in college, a little bit different atmosphere. And here now we're at a pro um, area. And so I think in general, Portland really, you know, the Portland Timbers were folded. Um, there was no, you know, major outdoor team at the time, maybe a, a little bit of a semi-pro outdoor team, but it, it was really a dark time at that time for Portland. And then they're going to start up this indoor team. And, um, the thing that I think was really cool in some ways was that the best players out of the Portland market and some in the Pacific Northwest um, were going to play for this team. And, you know, I've heard you, uh, your podcast before, and I, I totally agree with the statement you'll make. It's like, I don't know if there's ever after the CISL been anything as close to it from an indoor standpoint that can match it as far as like the talent, because at that time, unless you're going overseas to play outdoor, uh, a lot of really, really good players were playing indoor at the time. So our team in Portland consisted of University of Portland players, Warner Pacific, where I went to college. We had a few of our guys on that team. And we also um, pulled a bunch of uh, the Tacoma Stars uh, veterans um, that came down from Tacoma from the old MISL days, like you said, the major indoor soccer league. And so guys like Neil Megson and Ralph Black and uh, Billy Crook, um, we we got them signed on with uh, the Portland Pride team. And we mixed them in with some really good um, players coming out of University of Portland and Warner Pacific College. And um, we had, yeah, it was a pretty solid team. And I only, like I said, um, you know, worked on the game days. I was a game day volunteer. I helped coach at their soccer camps um, and did a little of that at the beginning. But um, yeah, it was just, it was kind of cool to see it take off. And, you know, in the, in the very beginning, the CISL only had seven teams in the league. And so at the beginning, you know, you're as almost like a spectator, but involved with the team i'm wondering well how viable is this how long is this going to last with just seven teams but as, as we'll probably get into this conversation as we go on it built up to a pretty good league for a few years there well it's also odd too because uh it was uh it's a summer league uh indoors right and as we've learned in in some of our previous conversations ronnie weinstein in particular right a lot of this was uh, sort of uh, arena owners, uh, especially from the NBA, a little bit from the NHL, and frankly, even some independents, if you will, who simply wanted to have more uh, dates uh, for stuff in the summer uh, to fill in besides uh, concerts and a non-existent basketball and or uh, NHL hockey kind of scenario and stuff. So yeah, the idea of it being sort of big league um, uh, certainly was appealing. And and as we've learned from, from, from Ronnie in our previous conversation, a lot of it sort of came down to um, a belief, I guess, that the economics of the uh, the winter approach, the MISL, sort of petered out, and it's hard to compete against uh, the incumbents of the NBA and the NHL, especially as they were starting to fully own their own arenas, right? So mm -hmm. it sounded like this is sort of a uh, a smart solve, if you will. You've got NBA and NHL owners and or their arenas, right? Essentially investing in the idea of this, right? So it's not sort of fly by night and they have to rent their facilities per se, right? So arguably it's a little bit of a better head start than some of the other wacky propositions that had happened years before. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Portland's uh, climate for sports at the time was an NBA team, the Portland Trailblazers. And um, yeah, they they played in the uh, late fall, winter time, and they were wrapping things up. And um, we were at the Memorial Coliseum our first uh, two years, uh, three years, actually. And um, there, yeah, I mean, unless there was a concert going in there or some, you know, some kind of like um, event uh, that was a one-off thing at the Coliseum. Yeah, there are a lot of open dates. So 
Um, our ownership group out of Portland consisted of um, Brian Parrott and a few of his investors. And Brian Parrott was um, a uh, tennis pro and pretty well known in this area, if, you, if, you, if people know much about tennis. And uh, he was actually, one cool thing that I learned about the guy was um, he started, or he was the promoter for the Dream Team, the very first Dream Team with, you know, Charles Barkley and Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Irvin Johnson, Johnson and, and the Dream Team played one of their first uh, formal games before they got into the uh, uh, tournament. And they played in Portland. It was insane watching those players. And Brian Parrott was the guy who put this together. So he was the owner of the pride, had a little bit of clout behind him. And um, he uh, got together uh, with the folks you know, that um, you know were running the uh, Memorial Coliseum at the time. And I'm sure those folks were happy to have, uh, you know, say, I think we were playing seven uh, games, maybe 14. I, my memory is a little shady on that as far as home games at Memorial Coliseum. But um, yeah, they they wanted to put butts in seats um, back then, as they probably do today in any event. And um, it was a different concept because we were going indoors in the heat of the summer in Portland. And we don't get a we get a three or four month window of nice weather here in Portland, typically, and it disappears real quick. So those people will, you know, the fans, the consumers, they'll, they'll want to make sure that they're uh, you know, not staying indoors during the whole summer, but uh, we we did okay with attendance. Actually, it wasn't staggering, but we we did all right. What are you doing then? What's your role? What's your day game role? And and you're mentioning obviously the soccer camps and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, yeah. I literally walk us through and maybe yeah. a bit of background on on um yeah the stadium situation because obviously you moved to the I think then brand spanking new 1995 or so Rose Garden. But 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 yeah. lighten our audience a little bit what this Memorial Coliseum was about, because Memorial Coliseum had indeed seen indoor soccer prior back in the old Portland Timbers days when there were these little yeah. tournaments. Yeah. Right. For sure. For sure. Yeah, it was um, it was kind of interesting. My um, first kind of um, go around as um, a game day operator, I'd get there uh, nine or 10 a.m. I spend the whole day down there. The reason why I'm getting there so early is there's a couple of us that would be down there for the team practices. So Portland may have from nine to 10, they do their walkthrough. They have a light practice. And then the team they're playing against, um, say it's the Dallas sidekicks, they'd come in and train from 10 to 11. So we would get down there and kind of open doors up at the Coliseum. There'd be, you know, some Coliseum uh, employees down there, but mainly for security. And then we would kind of get everything set up um, around the locker room area and uh, make sure everything was put together on the field and, um, you know, just get, get, get everything set up for the practices. And then the teams would finish up practices, hang out a little bit. Um, and then we'd go grab some lunch, the group of three or four of us. And then after lunch, then it got to be the time where we would start hanging dasher boards. Now the boards were up, but we had advertisements and just imagine these really like long adhesive advertisements for say Dodge or Fred Meyer, which is our local grocery store or, or um, you know, the local pizza place. We would put up the uh, advertisements around all the boards. Um, we would, uh, the, the Coliseum people that worked down there would bring out the heister uh, before the practice even started and, you know, put the turf down, but, the turf would contract and expand depending on the weather. And so sometimes the turf would roll up onto the walls, which wasn't good. So we trim some of it down with razor blades and then we would use some of those pieces to maybe, you know, fill a gap on the other side of the field where there was some cement showing. It was just kind of a circus the way that, that was all put together. 
you know, the, the typical fan would come down there. They wouldn't know anything different, but I just thought it was the oddest thing that we, we would spend a couple hours just grooming the turf basically and getting it ready. And then um, we would set up uh, different um, uh, media um, things for the, for the broadcasters. We would be out in the concourse areas, setting up our program stands to sell programs we would, um, you know, just be working in, in and out with the uh, operations people from the Coliseum that would start showing up midday. And then uh, the teams would typically for a seven o'clock kickoff would start coming in, say, around um, five, five thirty. They'd go through just, you know, whatever rituals they had. And we would make sure that they were all set up in the locker room area. The referees would start showing up. Um, you know, all of these things that go and put, you know, it, it's, it's crazy to think, and I still have notes from way back in the day of what kind of detail goes in from behind the scenes. Cause as a fan, you walk in there, you show your ticket, you get in the facility and you get some food, you go to your seat, you, you know, hopefully enjoy a really fun event, but there, there's a ton that went into it. So that's what I did my first couple years. Uh, and that was basically a game day operation. And we get out of there after the game around 1030 at night, maybe 11, and then, um, you know, wherever the post-game party was at, we definitely go down there and have a couple beverages and enjoy the evening um, after being, you know, involved with the whole, you know, scenario for uh, eight to 10 hours, you know. Um, so, but it was it, a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. You, you sent some notes earlier on the uh, on the, the field surface and stuff, right? So mm-hmm. uh, it's always, I'm always curious. And even in today's uh, major arena soccer league and stuff, I always, I'm fascinated by what the turf situation is. Um, can you describe a little bit more in detail that? And, and, uh, in this case, right, there was no, I don't think at the time, minor league hockey team, maybe there was, um, how much of, um, well, there wasn't because it was playing in the summer. So forget that. Right. So there was no ice. So you're putting, you're putting the, 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 uh, uh, the surface on top of what concrete on top of something like a a board uh, thing that normally would be over, um, overridden by ice or what? Yeah. So a concrete, um, the turf back then on our first couple of years at Memorial Coliseum, I still have as one of my carpet rug type of things in my garage. I still have a large piece of this. The, Tim, this, um, this turf was the brutal plastic old school, uh, very sharp, <laughs> coarse kind of material. And, um, the, the Memorial Coliseum people would bring their heister out and they would roll in. I want to say it was like eight to 10 huge rolls that would go across the rink and they would put those in place. Velcro would be used kind of underneath the turf to kind of keep the seams as close together as possible. But we were basically laying very, very thin profile carpet over cement. And um, there was one incident, um, since we're talking about this topic, uh, the Portland Winterhawks were our, uh, you know, I guess, um, WHL. I, I can't remember the acronym for the league, but correct. Uh, Western, Western Hockey League. Correct. There you go. Thank you. And so the Winterhawks did have some kind of event. And um, I remember the the whole the whole system when they melt the ice um, and it just turns to water and then they squeegee off all the excess water. Uh, but the floor is still kind of cold. Um, we um, put our turf down um, above that. And what it did, it made a slippery the turf was not very stable on top of this wet surface, which is wet cement, basically. <laughs> and so during the game, I, I felt like, oh, my gosh, the players are like they're losing their footing more. Um, it seems like the turf is moving a little more. And I'm, I'm just thinking, God, there's going to be a knee blowout or something real soon or a bad ankle 
uh, injury or something, but we got through that game, but that one sticks out in my mind because that was one of the only times we kind of overlapped with the uh, hockey slash soccer setups. Um, but um, yeah, it was, it was basically thin carpet over cement. There was not a lot of cushion back then in those days. How are you, how was the team selling itself? Uh, were you involved in any of the promotional stuff, the, the uh, selling of tickets or anything outside of the, the game day experience to kind of help? Uh, yeah, so, some kind of attraction. Yeah. Um, so fast forward to about 1995. That's uh, when Brian Parrott um, sold the team to another uh, group of investors. Uh, the lead guy on that was Norm Daniels. And um, basically, I got hired um, as a full-time office person. I was the uh, director, assistant director of operations for a title back then. And um, so now I'm kind of more immersed inside the business side of it. And so to your original question, um, we did a lot of promotion, promotion, promoting um, with soccer camps, soccer tournaments that had our name on it. Um, we had player appearances all over town. Um, and so I personally was only involved with um, getting those events set up. And then I would use a lot of my connections, word of mouth. We had a full on ticket um, group, uh, uh, ticket sales uh, group. And um, there was about three or four of those people that were split up into group sales, uh, individual ticket sales, season ticket sales. Um, so we we had a, a department set up for that. But by this time, uh, we did some advertising on um, in the newspapers around town. Uh, a few billboards, not very many billboards were expensive. We had, you know, not the biggest budget in the world as probably most of these teams didn't. Uh, but that's how we kind of got the word out about the tickets. Portland and Seattle, like we talked about earlier, and even Vancouver, I'm sure it, it just soccer just it, people gravitated towards the sport. We did not kill it um, in terms of attendance. I, I still to this day thought we should have done a lot better with attendance, but we did we we did what we could with what we had, and um, we would average between five and six thousand, you know, uh, fans during the the course of the years that the pride was in existence, and um, that filled up probably half the Coliseum or half the Rose Garden, um, but. Uh, again, the budgets didn't really allow us to, you know, go crazy with the marketing. Um, but yeah, so I didn't really get specifically involved with the uh, the ticket sales, but definitely was um, I, I, you know, saw a lot of it going on. How about scheduling? Uh, you know, the premise of this entire league, right, was to fill in uh, ostensibly uh, a litany of, of blank dates during the summer months when hoops and uh, hockey were not being played. Uh, did you have fairly decent dates and and if i remember correctly and this is maybe me projecting here but i want to ascribe the phenomenon uh of uh midday uh, uh soccer camp and or youth kind of games midweek if you will like not mm -hmm. traditional evening or weekend games to the cisl i, I may have that wrong but I, I, it was. I think this was around the time when some of that, if you will, experimentation was going on. Where, hey, let's bring the kids in during an afternoon during the week instead of, you know, a traditional nighttime evening game. I don't know if if that's true. Number one, number two, if you guys participated in anything like that. But but what 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 about the scheduling? Yeah, no problem. Um, Washington Warthogs, one of the teams in the CISL, they did that actually. One, uh, we we got some numbers from them and we got some uh, feedback. They did an afternoon game, and that's what Tim. They totally tied it into a camp or some kind of tournament going on. And I, I think, if I remember correctly, they had pretty good success with it. 
In Portland, we never tried the afternoon game. So what we were up against in the summertime for scheduling was a concert would definitely knock us out of there. Um, there was also, I don't know if you, I know you look at and dabble in a lot of different sports. Um, do you remember a professional roller hockey league? Yeah. Roller, roller hockey international, of course. Yes. And so Portland, I want to say had a team for one or two years. And so we were kind of fighting with them and jousting with them for Friday and Saturday night dates. Um, and so our scheduling, um, if there was some kind of like, um, event, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, trucks, uh, I can't even think of the term, but you know, the, the race car, not even race car, but anyway, they had some things in the Coliseum that would bump us because it, it brought in a lot more, you know, I guess client, you know, fans. And it, it just, from a revenue standpoint, it made sense for the, for the Coliseum to maybe take us away from some of those dates. So scheduling for us, wasn't as challenging as probably for some other towns, but we definitely we definitely lost out on some good Friday and Saturday night uh, game nights that we really wanted, and that that became a frustration too. Um, and later on, when uh, NHL uh, was starting up camps in the fall or late summer, um, Portland was really trying to get NHL in the Rose Garden back in the day, and so I remember one time uh, Pittsburgh Penguins in Anaheim. Um, the Anaheim Ducks it came in and did did an exhibition game in there, probably in August or September. And so um, we got moved over to the Coliseum, I think, for a game. And um, they they got the Rose Garden, of course, because they, they probably sold that thing out because that was at the time they were really trying to get the NHL into town. Uh, people yelling at their devices. Uh, it's the Portland rage of uh, roller hockey international. There you 90, go. Good. 90, 93 <laughs> and 94 were the two seasons there. Well, okay. So, but it sounded like though you had a fairly decent shot at some good dates. And stuff. how would you describe um, the, the difference between uh, the Memorial Coliseum, which is still standing, I was surprised to find out. Uh, but yes. then again, I haven't been to Portland in 15, 20 years. Um historic registry and all that kind of stuff, but it's literally right next door to the Rose. Well, it's called the Moda center now, but yes, then it was called the Rose center. What was the, uh, uh, give me a sense of the, of the difference between the arenas, obviously the size difference, but uh, was, was there a marked uh, upgrade, so to speak as, as the new arena back in, did it, did it help or hurt attendance at all? Um, you know, uh, did it feel more professional, so to speak uh, now that you were moving into the big, the big dig? Yeah, I would say definitely more professional. Uh, that was Paul Allen's um, thing where, you know, he had taken over the Blazers um, at that time. And, the, you know, the, this is, this was his building and it was, oh my gosh, it, back then, I mean, it's been around for a while, right? But I mean, state of the art on everything back in the day. The Coliseum, and I agree with you too, uh, you know, I'm su surprised it's still there and it is, and they still play some of the hockey in there and have concerts in that facility. But um, the Coliseum, uh, just was run down. It was just, it was, I would be behind the scenes in different areas of that Coliseum that a lot of people probably never have. It's just the operational side of things. And, you know, you go down a little hallway and um, you would see stuff in garbage and just junk kind of in a corner. You go over to the Rose Garden, 200 yards away, you walk in there and it's, it's pristine. It's clean. It's sight lines in there are great. The acoustics are great. The sound is great. The, uh, big thing for the Rose Garden back then was um, the video replay board, which was your scoreboard too. And the Coliseum, they, they did not have that set up, one of those um, scoreboards set up. So if there was ever a replay that you wanted to see after, you know, a great, amazing play, 
you pretty much better remember what happened in your mind because you're not going to see a replay on the spot. And that was, and, and it kind of shows you how long ago this was. That was like a big thing to have this very clear, very easy to see replay board, which was your scoreboard slash replay. Um, and so that was a big plus. Um, we just, uh, it just, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it earlier, it just felt more professional. I felt like at that time, the league was doing really well when we moved into that building. We, our fan base was very strong, although I still think we should have been getting more like eight or 9,000 people per game. We were still hovering around the five to 6,000 per game. Um, but I think that the uh, fans that attended those games probably enjoyed it a lot more too. It was just the clean, nice building that, you know, you could walk into and it smells good and it looks good and it, you feel like, well, it, we've arrived. <laughs> Tell me about the quality of play uh, and how similar or dissimilar it was from your recollections or knowledge at the time of the old MISL and, and the uh, and the indoor soccer kind of thing. Obviously, they're uh, the NPSL, the indoor uh, you know, uh, uh, the fall and winter league, right? Had this mm -hmm. sort of wacky point system. CISL didn't have that, right? But were the goals the same size? Were the, were the rules largely the same? Uh, what was happening when a goal was scored? I mean, did uh, you know, did a, a, a balloon come down and blow up uh, confetti or was it just kind of a normal? What was that all like? Oh, it was great. Um, we had a lot of good promotions during the game. The, the, I'll, I'll start with this one, though, the, the players themselves. So I did used to go uh, to a lot of Tacoma Stars games back in the day. I was living in Seattle. I'd drive down the I-5, go to Tacoma. And I mean, my gosh, they had Steve Jungle and Precky was playing on this team. And it just I go back to that comment. There was not a lot of choices to play in the United States. So we had some incredible players playing indoor, which is crazy now because the, the good players are going to be playing outdoor. But um, the the... The style of play and the quality of play for the old MISL, I thought was really good. And then they had some, you know, things going on. Players are going overseas. They need to change, you know, formats of the league and this and that. And then when the CISL starts up, um, I don't think it, I personally don't think it was as good, say, as the MISL in, in its heyday, but it was still really pretty strong. And, um, Overall, the players that we were pulling from the Portland metropolitan area, and then you get up into Tacoma, and we had some of those guys coming down. Um, you know, some of the skill I, I saw Precky play two or three times when he, he was with the San Jose team. And um, that guy probably at the time may have been in his uh, mid 20s, maybe getting close to 30. Can't remember exactly, but absolutely incredible player. You couldn't get the ball off his feet. Um, we had some really good players that cycled through Portland, um, uh, Ralph Black, um, that name just always stands out for me because he was uh, probably one of the strongest hard-nosed defenders I've ever seen in indoor. You always, that's the kind of player you wanted to have him on your team and not playing against you. Um, and, uh, we had a goalie by the name of Jim Gorsick back in the day that used to play for the old Portland Timbers. And he played a couple years before he retired for the, uh, Portland pride and, um, not the most glamorous, uh, technically savvy goalie in the world, but he knew how to get the job done. He'd been playing indoor a long time, and he was kind of just tenacious. Um, and he he was a quality goalie. I mean, he he played with the San Diego Soccers and won probably three or four rings back in the day with the MISL. So he was established. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was it was a great great time for a lot of talent at that time period within the league. Um, and then um, back to your other question in terms of um, 
you know, some of the aesthetics around the game. Um, we had a couple of things that I thought were pretty, pretty fun. Uh, if you caught the ball cleanly coming out of the, uh, off the field and you're in the crowd and you caught it without it dropping to the floor in, in the stands, um, we used to give a round table pizza. Uh, we would have this little jingle that would come on about round table pizza. And then an usher would come down to that person. They'd throw the ball back into the court area and then um, they would get a, a certificate for a free pizza. So that, that just a little thing like that. Uh, you know, I still run into people today when they talk about those old games and they'll talk about the pizza catch. Um, we would have really good music going on uh, in between periods. They actually allowed you to play music during the game. I think they may have done that back in the MISL days too, maybe. But um, the atmosphere in there was actually really good. I, I, they, I think our operation um, segment from our team, or excuse me, our club internally, and that's the department I worked in, and then working with the people at the Rose Garden, um, it, it, it was it was a pretty good show. I think I think the fans really enjoyed it. All right, what's this? How about sportshistorycollectibles.com? Oh, boy. We love sportshistorycollectibles.com. You've heard us talk about it forever uh, since we began this show. One of our earliest sponsors, our pal Dean Mitchell, out in San Diego. And as the name implies, it's memorabilia from all those leagues and teams that, that came and went and thrived and failed, but nevertheless shaped the North American sports landscape of today. And if you're looking for ticket stubs or mini helmets... Uh, DVDs, pennants, uh, jackets, even uh, newspapers or uh, stadium replicas, magnet schedules, media got you name it. It's all there for you at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And we're talking about the best in forgotten sports history uh, in basketball and soccer and football and baseball and hockey and all kinds of miscellaneous sports like tennis and racing, uh, the stadiums, the Olympics even. Um, just amazing stuff. And, you know, you, you probably have eBay on your brain when you're thinking about looking for some of those items out there. And sure, eBay is pretty darn good, I guess. And there's, of course, some high-end auction sites out there, too, uh, for sure. But SportsHistoryCollectibles.com is unique in that it focuses on those things that this here podcast is obsessed about, which are things that aren't around anymore, in, t in particular teams and leagues and, and various related ephemera. And the good stuff is also highly uh, photographed and well-described, so you know what you're getting. And the prices really can't be beat. You don't have to worry about losing out on bids at the last minute and all that kind of stuff. And trust me, Dean's got stuff that you're looking for and is getting new stuff, not new stuff, but new old stuff, like inventory. That's it, that's what I'm looking for. All kinds of refreshed inventory all the time. Uh, so uh, it's first, it's just a sight to behold. So you'll you'll lose hours of time just looking and and ogling, if you will, digitally, uh, the items from your childhood or from various followings of teams that you might have uh, just plain old forgotten. And uh, to see uh, those items there for you and well photographed, uh, you're just going to just you're going to be amazed. Then after looking at more than a few of them, you're going to say, gosh, I got to have you one or a bunch of them. And that's where our promo code comes in handy. And that's good seats. 
A promo code good seats for you at sportshistorycollectibles.com for 10, no, 15. Yes, 15% off all of your purchases. Again, our thanks to Dean Mitchell and his pals at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Promo code good seats for 15% off all of your purchases. As they say, you'll be glad you did. Thanks, Dean, for your sponsorship of the show. And now, back to our conversation. How about the players? Did they sort of enjoy the experience? I mean, I, I can't imagine there was a whole lot of uh, a great salaries there. Were they kind of into it? Were they promoting? Were they uh, happy to be there, happy to have a place to play, so to speak? Or was it... Uh, I mean, I'm just curious as to you're mentioning some some quality players, but obviously you had a bunch of of uh, it's a whole generation of players, right? That had seen this outdoor set of leagues and stuff, and then even the indoor league basically sort of uh, dissipate, go away. Um, I got to imagine the bulk of them were happy to be there, albeit not for really much money, maybe except for some some vouchers after the game for some food somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, our. Uh... Our players minus maybe four, uh, we call them A contracts. So uh, the top four players on each of the teams in the league were on A contracts and they probably made, I don't know, four or five grand a month back then. Pretty good chunk of money, I guess. Um, the rest of the players, the B players, the C players, and then the game appearance players who would just literally, if they stepped on the field, they would, they would get, you know, I don't know, 150 bucks for their troubles <laughs> for playing for, you know, a few minutes in the game. But um the majority of our players, I could just tell, were very happy to be involved with the team. It was ran professionally. They did not make very much money, but they were playing professional soccer and they were traveling and everything was paid for. Uh, I believe, you know, just based on what you're saying and what I know, uh, a lot of these players had a second job or um, they were doing a lot of soccer camps or they were getting paid to coach on the side. So this wasn't their only source of income by any means, but um, I was about the same age as a lot of the players, some of them being a little bit younger, but I remember thinking because I was such a soccer nut, I, I wanted to play, you know, I'll, I'll get out there and pay, play for 125 bucks a game, you know, and a lot of these players that um, were in their mid 20s, late 20s, I, I thoroughly believe they they enjoyed it and they they probably still go on to YouTube and maybe watch some of the games that are posted on there um, just to relive that and um I think it was, um, you know, it, it was set up in a very professional fashion. It's unfortunate the league did not gain any extra momentum and last longer. And um, there's a lot of a lot of reasons why that didn't happen. But um, yeah, for those for those guys in their 20s and 30s, I, I'm sure that it was a great time for them. And they were they were a lot of fun to be around. Well, I want to go into that Daniel Mont in a second, but uh, I want to double click on that um, uh, your your uh, the, the pay structure there. So you're basically saying that there were some uh, must have a lister sort of uh, I guess somewhat exclusive contracts. There was the sort of mid tier player, and then there were these. So describe to me these per game player types. I mean, were they practice squad guys who would dress but not necessarily be guaranteed a shot of the game, or because or, it sounds like a very maybe almost ingenious way to keep costs low on the, on the payroll front. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think each roster consisted of somewhere between 18 and 22 players. Uh, you could only suit up. I think it was um, 16, maybe 17 a game, but then you still had five to six players that were, you know, um, involved with the team. They were actually on a contract, but it was more of a contract to be committed to being available to be on the team than a certain salary structure. But those bottom four or five players on that um, 
you know, pecking order, um, we're paid um, X amount of dollars, 125, 150 uh, for a game appearance. The other players were, you know, basically receiving a paycheck each month or every two weeks from the league office because the league office handled pretty much all the salary um, structure and and payments to the players, which I thought, you know, going back to Ron Weinstein and the uh, founder of the league, I thought I kind of, you know, for the way that league was set up and I thought it was kind of wobbly at the beginning, but it, it seemed to gain more momentum. But I thought that was a pretty good idea, the way that um, some of the teams were run. It's probably good that the they had to pay their dues. And when they paid their dues to, you know, the head office in California, Los Angeles, then they would make sure that the players would be paid. You know, there was no question about that. And um, like I was mentioning earlier, we had A-list players, we had B, those guys, you know, were maybe, you know, a couple thousand dollars less than the A's. And then maybe, you know, the uh, C players were uh, a thousand or two less than that group. So it was just tiered out. And um, the coach at the beginning of the year um, would probably sit down with the assistant coach and or some somebody in the office, a general manager of sorts, um, and figure out, okay, here's our here's our list of players from A to Z. And here's what they're going to basically what what tier they're going to be on for pay. The uh, first year of the CISL, obviously, Portland uh, being a charter uh, member, um, it, it was interesting to me because it looks like uh, it, it, it frankly was with the exception of Monterey, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, it was largely a West Coast or a Western United States kind of thing, which to me looks like it was uh, geographically more uh, compact. I mean, you had teams in what? Dallas and Portland, obviously, San Diego, uh, Monterey, Sacramento, Arizona, Los Angeles. So with the exception maybe of Dallas and maybe Monterey, but even those are, if you will, they're not certainly East Coast by any stretch uh, of the United States. Um, that feels uh, economical to me, uh, travel-wise, cost-wise, um, recovery-wise uh, for players, et cetera. Yeah, um, I, th- I, I I agree with that. And I remember when Washington, D.C., Detroit, Michigan, um, trying to think some other East Coast teams. We had we had Carolina one year. I mean, we're talking some East Coast teams. Um, I used to book a lot of the uh, flights uh, for the, the team to go travel. And they usually would parlay it with two games, maybe a three-game road trip. But, yeah, the, the I just remember when I would book the uh, airline tickets for the team, you know, you look at the bottom line and the dollars that were being spent. And I was like, wow, that's, that's a big chunk of money. Uh, you know, you got maybe 15, 16, 17 people on this road trip. Uh, you know, the hotels for a few nights, uh, on this road trip, uh, the per diem, uh, a lot of it added up. And I, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think, um, Ron Weinstein's idea at the beginning was, um, you know, being cost conscious and making sure that all these expenses weren't completely through the roof, and we were more West Coast. We had more of a West Coast presence. Um, but then you could see it, you know, moving a little bit further east as 1995 uh, rolled around when we peaked at 15 teams, I believe, in the league. Yeah, um, I mean, 94, I mean, you went to, literally from the initial seven to 14 in just one. Yeah. I mean, that's I, I think we talked about this with Ronnie as well. I mean, uh, I, the model, it seems like it's attractive, right? I mean, the, the fact that you get through that first season for uh, some pretty decent crowds, uh, pretty stable, some pretty exciting playoff games. Uh, you know, but to go from a largely West Coast enterprise to Detroit and Carolina yeah. uh, and, and Washington, uh, you know, um, all overnight. Right. That's, uh, you know, that's at least a handful of cross-country trips for said Portland team. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And that, that was a big expense. And then, of course, the East Coast is coming back over here to the West Coast and having to knock out 
you know, a, a trip to say Portland and when Seattle was in the league and then maybe they jumped down into Southern California and hit Anaheim and uh, maybe hit San Jose, uh, Arizona. I mean, yeah, Sacramento. I mean, there was a lot of, there was a lot of games to be played from the East coast teams to play out here on the West coast too. It was, yeah. The model um, built, you know, and then I, I think the same thing sometimes with the old NASL, we were talking NASL soccer outdoor, um, you know, I guess it just comes to the point where it's like, oh, let's get bigger, uh, maybe not better, but let's just keep getting bigger. It could be attractive, more attractive to big uh, sponsorships with uh, radio, TV and uh, automobile deals for sponsorships. Uh, yeah, it's just it's too bad that some of these leagues got a little bit over ambitious at the beginning, but it is, you know, the way it is, I guess. So let's also now talk about the aforementioned uh, Monterey La Raza, um, because this was uh, an interesting wrinkle to this league in that it was the um, uh, only franchise, at least at the time, I think actually for the entire league existence uh, in Mexico, outside the United States. Uh, Not necessarily a new phenomenon because North American uh, various sports leagues have had Canada and the United States. But this, I think, was really kind of the first uh, real attempt at uh, mainlining, shall we say, a uh, a full-time team in a professional league south of the border. Um, you mentioned a couple of things in our in our uh, notes prior to, to this uh, recording, but uh, I had to think that that was a bit of an outlier on a number of different fronts. Uh, this 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 franchise, both the travel to and their their approach to play and the cost structures and the border issues and all that stuff. Yeah, it was uh, some of my fondest memories is the Monterey team. Uh, first of all, that team was great. They, they were packed with talent and that, I mean, whenever we played against them, it was always a physical battle. It was a, a lot of really good soccer being played. It brought out the best in the Portland team. The Monterey team was great, but yeah. So what we would typically do is each year when Monterey was in the league, we'd um, have a two game road trip. We'd hit Dallas, which was never easy with tattoo and their whole team. Um, and we uh, finish up with, say, Dallas on one night, and then we travel into Monterey, Mexico uh, the next night. And um, when we went through a coaching change in around, I want to say, 1997, John Bain had left the team. And uh, a gentleman by the name of Ian Fulton was running the team. And he had been down, he'd been on board for almost a full year. And we're getting down to the very end of the season. And I think we let Ian Fulton go. Uh, at that time. And Ralph Black became the player coach. Uh, he was playing for us, but uh, we we just slotted him in as the player coach to finish out the rest of the year. And then we get into Monterey. I traveled with the team on this one particular trip. And um, the day before we leave, I think Ralph called me up and said, hey, have you heard about the rule where you have to have an official kind of uh, presence of a coach on the bench during the whole game? And I said, I don't know that specifically, but we'll look into it. So we did, and we did confirm that we had to have somebody like that on the on the bench. And so I had already got uh, my airline ticket with the team already booked. I'm already going down there. So I became the impromptu coach for that road trip because uh, Ralph, of course, was going to be playing in, in the game itself. So, um, you know, had a suit on and I'm uh, not making any strategic moves. I'm not even really opening my mouth up. These guys know what they're doing and they don't need me as the uh director of operations at the time um that was my title you know trying to you know tell them what the game plan was um but the games in monterey were absolutely incredible the the atmosphere what they played in this little dome mini dome i would say tim and it would seat maybe three to four thousand people they would sell it out every time we were down there 
And uh, they allowed any of the fans that were of age to smoke a cigarette or smoke whatever in there. And we would literally uh, be warming up 10 minutes before the game when the, the crowd was rolling in and getting pretty full. And it was a plume of smoke everywhere. I mean, it was, I just, I couldn't believe I, I'm standing on the, on the side, well, on the bench area, like acting, acting as the coach, but the players are running and doing all this cardio and they're basically inhaling all this smoke. And I just, I, this is, this is just something out of a comic book. You know, this is just completely bizarre to me. And um, they also uh, would plant water bottles in our bench area and in our locker rooms that were like just regular water. I don't know, poured into these, uh, you know, little cups and, you know, uh, squeeze bottles. And we told the players and I remember Ralph, the coach said, do not drink that water. If you want any water, you got to get a bottle of water with the seal attached, you know, so you know when you open up that water or you're going to go without water because, the water down there um, during those years, uh, you drink that. And if it doesn't agree with your stomach, you're going to have issues during the game. <laughs> so um, it was just a crazy, crazy atmosphere down there. Um, I enjoyed it. Just the fact that the kids um, that came to these games with their parents were very passionate. They met us out by the buses after the game. They wanted our shoes. They wanted our jerseys. They wanted us to sign autographs. And they were just completely enamored with the uh, professional athlete i think that's super cool it's kind of you know what a lot of kids even myself did when i was seven or eight years old and i'd be around some professional players it was kind of you know inspiring um and then we'd um basically call it a night in monterey and then fly all the way back to portland the next day but it was a long road trip um it, it was always a lot of excitement uh, the games were just nonsense i mean they're probably the most intense games that I remember out of all the years I've worked with the team um, in terms of the competition. It it was just a lot of fun. Yeah, an interesting story that La Raza because uh, it's called Monterey Tech Gym, and if you see you have any pictures of it, it's like a, it's truly like a cracker box, like thirty five hundred people maybe on a good yeah. day. Uh, it must have been intense. Um, but I think uh, part of the uh, allure of that franchise at the time was that there was uh, in the the early nineties uh, the construction of a of a new a brand new sort of gleaming uh, uh, indoor arena. But um, I think it was originally supposed to be completed around 94 or 95 or so. And it took 10 more years for it to finally yeah, actually yeah. Be, be completed. Um, I think even to the fact where when La Raza, I think, came back and we'll talk about the the, the Premier Soccer Alliance and then then it becoming the World Indoor Soccer League. They came back for a year in the World Indoor Soccer League and the league, and the arena still hadn't been built. I guess they got kicked out because <laughs> it hadn't been finished yet. So uh, I, craziness, right? But I, it, it's interesting. I could again, this to me, you can see it from the the Weinstein mindset, right? It's like uh, if there is a new arena being built, right, or at least the plan mm -hmm. for it. Um, this league felt very much like a. Uh, a reason to exist because uh, existing facilities existed and had time and space for it versus yeah. we want the high level soccer because soccer needs to continue to live. I don't know. That's just my, but, but then again, if you're in the middle of it and you're playing and you have the opportunity to play, even if it's for 150 bucks for, for a game uh, and you're getting a Jersey and a couple of photos out of it, you know, as you go back to your day job, I don't know. I got to think that it still feels better than not playing at all. Yeah, I, I agree. Like I said, I would have really enjoyed doing that. I played in a couple of reserve games, um, Sacramento and against Seattle. Um, so when John Bain was coaching, 
he uh, was putting together his reserve team. And he, if he came up short on players, I could hold my own, especially in a reserve game. Uh, but it was it was exciting just to even be a part of that. And we weren't playing in the Rose Garden or the Coliseum. We were playing at, um, you know, the indoor soccer arena down the street that the uh, adult leagues per, per reside or the uh, youth teams, you know, play at. So um, I remember playing in those games. We were on really short shifts. We had game plans. We, you know, had a couple guys from the A team playing with us. Um and I, I always mentally would start thinking, oh, what would it be like to play on the top tier uh, in front of a decent crowd? You know, it'd be a lot of fun. Um, but I, you know, I was very happy to work for the team. I enjoyed my career there for sure. Um, so I want to get to the demise and then and the PSA in a second. But um, tell me about the media. I mean, because there was still how much was uh, coverage was there? Um, were you getting top tier or? any kind of a uh, following and treatment and stuff and, and the television broadcast, I know that was sort of a, a patchwork. I think maybe the earliest days of the regional sports network model, uh, there were some games right locally in Portland, uh, as well as these, uh, Fox sports, national cable games too, I think. Yeah. We had a local presence, um, coin six, uh, or CBS affiliate would show a game here and there. Uh, I've got some of those copies that I put up on YouTube from way back in the day. Um, we um, locally, we had pretty good um, coverage from the uh, local stations, but a, a little side story here, which I still kind of just kind of makes me chuckle today. Um, Colin Cowherd, who does his uh, um, radio slash TV sports um, show, you know, every day of the week and been around for a long time. He's, he got his start pretty much in Portland. Maybe he had one or two markets before that, but he was a, he was in Portland for one of the uh, stations here. And Colin Coward uh, would come down to our games, but he really made it very clear to us he didn't want to be there. <laughs> he he didn't care for soccer. He was very, look, I got to be here. I'm going to interview a couple players and roll his eyes and kind of leave and not be too social. Um, and, you know, at the time I look back on that, I was kind of like, well, you know, it's kind of disheartening because we wanted all the good positive feedback and all the support we could get with the media. Um, and then he goes on to the big national platform. Um, and, and when I listen to him, I kind of get where he's at. He knows what sells and it's probably football and it's probably, um, you know, playoffs or the, you know, the college basketball tournament. He, I mean, he's, he's got a pretty good idea that, you know, a small market is Portland, Oregon with indoor soccer at a time where there was really no legitimate pro outdoor league. Uh, you know, he just was kind of, that's what why he took on, I think, that persona about uh, his feelings towards the Portland Pride. Um, but, yeah, we were on TV locally here. I do know we got a couple um, games that were on more of the national um, level, too. Uh, we, you know, occasionally get tabbed for one of those um, broadcasts. But um, I wish it could have been more. I think that would have helped us out a lot if we had a, a even a bigger and more supportive presence uh, from the media around here in Portland. All right, so let's 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 uh, get into the beginning of the end of this and the the the, the sides side swipes, I guess, that sort of were buffeting this league. So, nineteen ninety four, right? World Cup fever, right? So, yeah. uh, an interesting dynamic, I would imagine. Um, although Portland itself didn't host any games, um, it had to be an interesting. Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, tear at the fabric, I guess, of the soccer fan in this country, because here they are the world's best players playing in the summer and, and gigantic stadiums and sold out and 
you know, and the Colin Cowherd's having of the world having uh, can't ignore this. So I guess this is the biggest show on earth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you you guys are trying to soldier on playing this now, uh, maybe oddly shaped uh, indoor version of the game. And then I'm I, I, so I get number one, I guess, what effect, if any, does the World Cup have on that year's summer uh, season? And then I guess similar question is when MLS starts up in earnest two years later in 96, did that have any effect, good, bad or indifferent on uh, the the CISL season and and the Portland franchise in particular? Yeah, I think uh, the World Cup, in my opinion, helped us. I think it brought a lot more um, of your maybe not so passionate fans out. But now that the World Cup is on TV and people are seeing it, then they decide, hey, let's go down and watch the Pride play indoor because that's really all we had, uh, you know, for soccer at the time. Um, so I think the World Cup did kind of create some energy and and actually helped us um, some at the gate and just the overall acceptance of the uh, indoor soccer. Um, the MLS starting, I thought this is one of the things that hindered us and kind of uh, went against us. Um, some of the players that were local or, you know, along the Pacific Northwest area um, started getting tabbed in and signed to MLS contracts. And those were the players that were, I would call them fringe players, maybe in, in the MLS when that league first started, they good chance those guys would have played indoor with us and were solid players, obviously. So some of the teams in the CISL started losing some of their top-notch players and they were going to MLS. Because you brought up the NPSL earlier and you're spot on. The NPSL was the winter indoor league around the country and our, some of our players would play four or five months with that league and then jump over to the CISL and play another four or five months. So now all of a sudden they've got income for you know making money playing soccer for say 10 to 12 months a year playing in two different indoor leagues. Well, if they get picked up by the MLS, which a lot of them did, um, then they play for one team, probably make a little bit more money, and they're just on one contract. Um, some would maybe dabble going back and forth between outdoor and indoor, but that was decreasing a lot. Um, I think, uh, you know, the the MLS at the beginning, uh, the first couple of years, it was the brand new shiny car version of, you know, um, soccer at the time. So everybody was very interested in that. And um then I felt like the MLS just kind of like um, flattened out in terms of, um, you know, notoriety and uh, passion and, you know, all of all the things that go along with the ex- whole experience. And by that time, though, this is when the CISL was closing up shop. Um, and then I think the MLS really um, did themselves a big favor going back to the Cascadia teams, the three teams. Vancouver, Portland, and Seattle, when they got in the MLS, it, it definitely, I think, turned a corner for the better. Yeah, interestingly, it was it gave them uh, a legitimate sort of uh, uh, route or connection to the the true pass of the outdoor uh, thing. And frankly, it smooths over a lot of the wrinkles that happened in between the two, right? Um, yeah. Yet, the, the irony, of course, is that without indoor soccer, MISL, obviously, to start, but the things that sort of came thereafter, including the CISL. I think many people think that the CISL was sort of the last kind of great and decently high-level played version of the uh, the modern indoor game uh, that's sort of happened. And I think the MASL that exists now and the various leagues that have soldiered on sort of that that have now sort of comprised that, it, it, you know, the, the golden era, I guess, of indoor was certainly the MISL, but the CISL is probably the, the last great version of that. And I think it's because largely it was at that time, really the only 
if you could call it that top tier pro opportunity for players that, you know, were of playing age. Yep, for sure. So let me ask you this, though. So um, I, my understanding then is, you know, around so 1997 was the last year of the Continental Indoor Soccer League. And, and perhaps maybe MLS was having some effect. Uh, this would have been the second season now having, if you will, compete, quote unquote. Uh, I think there were a couple of markets where there was direct competition, um, even though the product is different. And I'm sure the marketing is different. It's still soccer. And that, you know, can be conflating or or confusing, maybe even to the casual fan about what that stuff is. But um, my understanding, though, is that there was actually uh, I, was it a surprise that the CISL sort of uh, disintegrated because it seems to me, and if I remember my conversation with Ronnie a couple of years ago correctly, there was kind of a rift, I think, between the ownership groups. Uh, and I think it was largely between those who uh, were uh, uh, NHL and or NBA and or maybe the arenas themselves, owners, and those that were, if you will, independent of that. And I know Portland was one of those situations where um, I think they were kind of in the the minority, if you will, of of what the NHL and NBA owner types were saying. Yeah, definitely. So at the very tail end of the CISL, you're right. And I, I, I've i listened to Ron Weinstein's two-part uh, uh, podcast of yours. Great. That was a great interview. And it was really, I really enjoyed that just for the mere fact that I could hear it from his point of view too. Cause my point of view at the time was um, Gordon Jago, the coach of the Dallas sidekicks really, as far as I was concerned, wanted to go a different direction. And we were allies with the uh, Dallas uh, franchise, Sacramento, Arizona, and Portland. And those, you know, I mean, our ownership was not the NBA or NHL ownership. We were independent owners, if you will, that owned our team. And so we we were looked at maybe as the four rebels now. And when Dallas, Dallas was such a, a, a pillar of this whole league that at the time it was Dallas, my understanding. Dallas sidekicks for those. And that's the tattoo and taking yes, off the jerseys yeah. and throwing them up in the, uh, yeah. in the stands and uh, tattoos of uh, one of the eighth wonders of the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Dallas sidekicks were, you know, if the Dallas sidekicks choose to do A, B, or C, people, it, it caught their attention. Um, and so we we were in contact and we were speaking with Gordon Jago and their ownership group. And um, I don't believe our ownership group at the time was very happy with the way the league was going and um, just the whole CISL format. We, we felt like at that time we could have maybe produced something stronger and better um, in hindsight, I think, you know, boy, that's a lot to take on. Um, but yeah, so the, the CISL basically closes up shop and well, I before remember you, before being, you, I'm sorry, before you go oh, there, what was the, what was the beef though? What was the, what was the grist for the, the differences of opinion? Was it, was it a desire maybe to go in into the fall instead of the summer? Was it uh, a, a, a limited number of games because the, the league owners, the NBA and NHL owners were, you know, kind of nipping at the at the schedule opportunities to expand. What was the what was it? Do you do you know or remember? Yeah, I mean, I as far as I can remember, I would sit in with some meetings with the ownership group, which was three or four strong at the time. And um, I at that time I was um, assistant general manager. We had another guy by the name of Bill Lavelle. He was our general manager. He was he was he'd already given me intel that he was going to be leaving and that made me nervous because i'm thinking okay if he's leaving this league may be going down um uh, but anyway so i was in this position where um our ownership group felt like um a lot of the money that the league 
was making should have been, um, I guess, um, re recycled back to the teams. I think, Tim, I think it came down to where our ownership group felt like there's only a few people winning financially in this whole setup. And it was, you know, I don't want to, you know, say specifically Ron Weinstein. I, I truly don't have any issues with him. I've, I've met him a couple of times. I don't believe he'd remember me, but I think he, I think he was doing everything he could. And I thought he was the right person for this league. Um, I, the meetings I had with the ownership group, there could have been a lot of things that were kept away from me too, verbally, um, as to what was really going on. So I couldn't pull, peel the onion back enough. But my feeling was the ownership group was kind of disgruntled with the way uh, the CISL was being run at the time and the way uh, the finances and the sponsorship money was being allocated. Uh, we had a couple of pretty big sp sponsorship deals that were put into place. Probably, you know, all credit to Ron Weinstein and, you know, some of his uh, folks that were down there at the, the main office. But um, it was blowing up pretty quick. And I knew um, at one point when we had a um, conference call back in the day and uh, Jim Thomas, I think from the Sacramento Kings was on it. You had Gordon Jago and some ownership people from Dallas. You had the folks from Arizona and our group. Um, and I was on this particular, um, you know, conference call and it was before we officially announced that we were leaving the league, but we on that call all were in for, we're going to start a new league. And, I was at the age too, where I was like, I, I wanted to stay on board for sure. But I, I just thought, man, now we're going from, I don't know, 11 teams in 1997 to a new league. Um, and we're only going to start with four teams and we're going to try and play international fixtures uh, with Brazil and Canada and a team from Mexico. Um, and we would intermix and intermingle players. So a couple games tattoo and a couple of the Dallas sidekicks played for us when we were playing in exhibition games. It was just, it was it was a lot of patchwork to be honest with you. It was it, I knew something it was it was going to fall out fairly quickly after that, and it, it certainly did. So okay, so how do how do you get informed, and what is the uh, gear shift to this uh, this new thing in 1998 called the Premier Soccer Alliance, which only had what four teams in it? Four teams, yeah. It just had four teams. It was Sacramento, Dallas, Portland, and Arizona. And then we signed deals to play some international fixtures. Um, so at that time, um, our general manager, Bill Lavelle, had resigned. And so um, they offered me the job. I took it. I still, I don't know, I'm going to go down with the sinking ship, I guess. I, you know, I didn't have a lot of very good vibe vibes about it, but I, I still was all in. I'm still passionate, always have been for soccer. I wanted to see this thing succeed. It was going to be tough, but I, I hung in there. And so... Um, we basically, um, I was not on this call, but they had a conference call with Ron Weinstein and the rest of the teams in that league and uh, basically said, we're out. And then Dallas called and said, we're out. And Arizona called and said, we're out. I mean, these teams are calling saying they're out. And then some team says, we're going to take a year off and maybe we'll return. But, um, it, it, you know, the proof is in the pudding. It was over. And then uh, the Premier Soccer Alliance that I give a lot of credit to Gordon Jago. He literally built something from the very ground level and, and tried to build this uh, league up as quickly as he could to keep the momentum going of the CISL uh, with a new name and some of the existing teams. And let's go out and see if we can find a few more teams in 1999 in the year 2000. Well, it never got that far. <laughs> Interesting. So how how then uh, you, Mr. Now, front office with a capital F, I guess. Yeah. Uh, how do you 
How do you market this team? Because obviously that you've got a name change. Uh, was that sort of fait accompli or did, was there any contemplation of keeping the old name or could you not use it because of the CISL regulations? I mean, like, how do you how do you gear shift for not only your new role, but the fact that it's a new league and, and you have to communicate that to the fans, get people to pay? I can't imagine you having the same number of home games even. Yeah, it, everything was decreased. I, I called it let's split everything in half. Our staff, our uh, office staff went from, I'd say, eight people. I think there was only four at the end, I being one of them. Um we we went down in schedules. We went down um, in dates. Uh, you know, at the Rose Garden, uh, we didn't have very many home fixtures. Um, everything was cut in half, it seemed like. And then, yeah, the name change. Um, what had happened was, is we, our ownership group at the time was uh, pretty nervous about keeping the name Portland Pride because I think the rift between Portland and Ron Weinstein and um, the league was pretty intense at the time. So our ownership group said, we, we, we got to go with a new name. We can't keep the same name. And I thought that's really challenging. Now we're, we're here. <laughs> we're known as the Portland Pythons. We were the Portland pride. We did play in the CISL. Now we're playing in the premier soccer Alliance. There's just so many changes. And, you know, as a consumer or a fan of this sport, you're, you're probably thinking, Oh, they're, they've got a mess going on down there, you know? And then now we're losing support. We have, maybe 2000 people at our game instead of four or 5,000. Um, I, I remember a few games in there, uh, that season of 1998. Uh, I just was looking around the, the stadium during the game and there was, you, I could start counting people. It would have taken me a while to get up to a couple thousand, but I just, it's, you know, it's that small of a crowd where you just think there's just not a lot of people in this building. And we were paying a pretty darn good price for the Rose Garden, Paul Allen's group at the time, to lease the place out. And that wasn't cheap at all uh, back then. Um, so a lot of expenses. Uh, the player salaries were cut way down. Um, it, it, it was just it was it was the beginning of the end is what it was there. Um, and you played two seasons, but then it was the PSA. <clears throat> Did you last after 98 to the? Nope. Yeah, the gear I, shift to the then renamed World Indoor Soccer League, which which I think, if I'm not mistaken, I'm trying to remember our conversation with Gordon Jago as well. But this is a couple of years ago now, I think. And I, I know I remember seeing still online some clips of the indoor game from England that was being played. And my understanding was that the change name to World was going to be sort of this blend or this marriage of this PSA thing. And that which existed in the UK in the indoor game and truly kind of make it a world league. And I would imagine maybe Monterey would be interested in that, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Gordon Jago um, had a lot of connections overseas, especially in England um, at that time, too, still as he does. Um, and he he was that was it. He was trying to get this um, over the pond league on the other side of the pond uh, and have our league kind of join in. So maybe four or five teams in the United States, four or five teams from you know, um, the UK and, and build this league up. Now, I don't know a lot of the details on how that went because by the end of the 1998 season, my one year with the Portland Pythons, um, I was let go, uh, and was no longer affiliated with the club. And it was very, very, you know, uh, sad. And you just, I, it wasn't so much that I got let go. It was more like, I, I really put a lot of energy in this. I started out, like I was saying earlier as a game day volunteer, to, you know, becoming the general manager of a professional sports team. And there was just a lot of, um, uh, you know, um, just memories that just flowed through, but they uh, let myself go. 
I think one other office person, and then they ran it with some new folks. And then that, that lasted one year. And then in 1999, at the end of that year, that was it. It was completely done. It, the lights were out, unfortunately, for the whole Portland Pride, Portland Python um, existence. Um, and, you know, when when it all happened, um, I, I felt like, you know, how could this happen? And what happens to me now? And where do I go from here? Um, I, I literally thought I'd like to work in the MLS. Seattle did not have a team or Portland for that matter at that time. Didn't want to really move. So I think soccer from a business standpoint in my life of that chapter um, just basically ended right there. But um, part of the reason why I wanted to be on here today is I wanted to tell the story. Uh, it, some great memories, some great times. Um, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Uh, my brother, um, while I was a gen general manager, this years ago, uh, my brother Greg, he had mentioned, he goes, you know, if you think about how many people want to become a professional athlete or become a general manager of a professional sports team, there's not a lot of them. And you got to do that. And it put it in perspective for me because um, it it really made me feel like I contributed something in my life to the game of soccer. Yeah, that's sort of be my sort of my major sort of last question is, is um while it may not been your career going forward, then uh, how about your relationship with the sport of soccer? Uh, has it uh, tainted it? Uh, did it uh, did it not make a difference? Uh, uh, you know, do you ever envision? Could you ever see yourself getting more directly involved in the sport? Was it just kind of a matter of uh, just the time and the circumstances? I mean, um, uh, what of sort of the experience? Are you better or worse for it? Would you say definitely much better for it? Um, I. I remember when I was a kid, I wanted to play. And then when I got to a more competitive level, I wanted to play pro soccer. I got to a level where I dabbled with some good players, but I could not get to the next step. And then I remember getting my college degree. I have a business degree. And I remember thinking, God, oh, it would be great to you know put, put my college degree together with the sport I love and get paid for it. And that's what I did for a few years. So no regrets, no problems with it at all. Um, I don't know... Um, I'm in my mid fifties now, and I don't know if I would ever go even like to the Timbers and, and want to pursue anything like that. I still go down to Timbers games. They have a great atmosphere. I'm more just the fan now. I like watching it. I am glad I had the experience of seeing how it was built um, from a professional standpoint from a league that started with, you know, Ron Weinstein back in the late eighties, early nineties, um, you know, just putting the whole, the whole thing together. Um, so it, it's been a lot of fun. I, um, I still play, um, men's league. <laughs> so on Sundays I go out kicking around with the fellow players. And I, I think the, the, the best thing that's happened in my life in terms of this sport is it's, it's like a fraternity. I've met so many great people. I've been around a lot, um, with the sport and it, it's just, it's, it's always been a big part of my life still, still will be, but from a business standpoint or getting involved with a professional team again, I don't think I would do it. I'd rather just go to the games and really sit back and just enjoy it all. Where, where does the, uh, where would you say the pride slash Python sort of history kind of, uh, does it live, right? There, there were no, uh, championship banners or anything of the sort to sort of be had. Uh, there were a couple of players that, you know, made a couple of, uh, uh, first teams and all-star kind of assignments and that kind of stuff. But um, for all intents and purposes, not a whole lot of uh, on-field sort of glory, so to speak. But, you know, this is also a, a sport where uh, some of these histories literally cul-de-sac into nothingness because there is no natural place for these things to go. Like I, the eternal hunt 
and I and I'm told literally every couple of months that this may not sort of ever happen, but the the four major indoor soccer league championship banners from the old New York Arrows, right? In many mm-hmm. respects, frankly, probably should live in the Nassau Coliseum for however long that lives, because that's where it happened. And there's no indoor team that kind of took their mantle really that that's even close to being around anymore. Different sports like hockey and stuff, you know, you can kind of you can make a case that either the team that the, the place moved to or maybe the the replacement team that came later on in that market could sort of house the memories and have the throwback games and stuff. But this is a different situation. I guess the question in there, maybe it's completely unanswerable, is where where does that stuff live? Are you the gatekeeper, frankly, of, of these two teams or or and or what? You know, that's a good question. I until you ask that, I really never thought of it that way. But um as you'll see the the photos and the, the memorabilia that I have that I'm glad I kept um, that I sent you for your uh, the website. But um, I could be one of the few people in this community that has uh, very many things, if any, like jerseys and um, different, you know, tchotchkes and all these uh, different items that I did keep from way back in the day from the team. But unless I mean, my guess would be if, if, and I still keep in touch with some of the players that they would maybe have kept a thing or two here or there of the uh, their their time with the team. But I don't think there's a lot of lot of stuff out there, Tim. I, I think it's a great question. If there is, I would love to talk with that person and find out what they have and kind of compare what I have. I don't have a lot, but I am glad I've kept maybe my 12 or 15 items from way back then. Um, and I, you know, have some media guides that I look through every once in a while just to kind of like go back in time and relive the day. But um, yeah, we did not win any championships. We didn't win any divisions. We were a mediocre team all in all. We made the playoffs twice, um, only twice. And um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's a, that's a fantastic, I don't have the answer to that because I don't know who else would have very many things, uh, you know, from that era. And it would be fun to see what, what is maybe potentially out there. I think, and I, I don't know if I ever brought this up with with Ronnie or or with Ken Tomash, our our, our friend from the uh, Indiana uh, uh, Indianapolis Twisters uh, conversation, and and uh, um, and Gordon Jago, of course, uh, inheritor, if you will, and, and continuer of you of the this version of the indoor story. I, it almost feels to me like there is a CISL type of reunion that that or or a connection that could sort of happen, right? Because you know some of these teams kind of went and it came and went, but I mean you know the sidekicks were there, the hot shots, the uh, the Washington Warthogs, the, the Detroit Safari, which is an interesting story because they were the neon prior to that. And that was a, sort of almost the first example of sort of a a, a team sort of a, a, a deferring, if you will, to a brand sponsorship, literally a name and and all that kind of stuff. And the CISL, like I said before, is, you know, I think by most soccer historian um, metrics would say that's probably the last it was probably the last sort of high level, you know, sustained indoor uh, version of the game, um, you know, no disrespect to the MASL, but, you know, there, there's still some, you know, some some uh, uh, inequalities, if you will, to the sort of the, that league. And, and maybe we'll get there someday because I, I still think it's a very viable product. A matter of fact, I I look at sort of, you know, futsal and and uh, in a world where private equity seems to be uh, throwing money at, uh, you know, uh, the seventh league and pickleball. And, and I don't know, there, seem, there seems to be if there's no it is the best of times and worst of times for quote unquote professional sports, because there's, you know, every ESPN Ocho idea is now got money behind it, like world tag chase and and all. I mean, great. I mean, I think it's it's fun. and But to, to think that indoor soccer played correctly or at that level with those rules 
huge excitement with good players, high high quality players that doesn't that uh, you know, doesn't compete per se with MLS uh, and finds its role within I don't know maybe the summer or maybe it's the winter months. Um, I don't know. It feels like it's very viable there. I just I wonder where that CSL version of that history is. Frankly, I wonder where that 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 legacy. You know, MISL kind of lives. I, there's no documentary yet. <laughs> there's no, yeah. uh, uh, you know, there's no natural place for those to sort of go. And, you know, I, I thought I heard it a little bit in, in, in not so many words from from Ronnie in that maybe there is still some germ of a of a good idea there. Maybe you could take the current MASL and 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 infuse it with some more money and bring it to a higher level. Throw streaming at it. I, I don't know. Um, there's no question in there. It's just that. You wonder. Uh, it was. It's such an exciting version and brand of the game. Um, I, a, as people like uh, Preki uh, showed, right? The, the the skills learned in the quick, uh, uh, fast pace and the uh, immediacy of having to make quick passing or dribbling decisions, right? That that only helps the game, uh, as he did when he went back into the outdoor realm. Um, I don't know. This feels like there's something lost by it being remembered, but also not sort of being uh, elevated to maybe its status again. And it just seems like the economics are still there or now maybe uniquely there to maybe bring it back in some way, shape or form. And thus then open up the floodgates of all the memories and you getting a lot of more, uh, I don't know, uh, 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 valuable uh, uh, money thrown your way for a memorabilia that you have only. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, one thing, too, you were speaking of about the games themselves. I've played indoor and I've played outdoor. One thing about the indoor game that it, you cannot replace is the quick thinking, the tight spaces. You have to become such a different player indoor that will help you in outdoor and vice versa. There's so many different ways that indoor can help an outdoor player. Um the quickness, uh, you know, the first touch, the technique. Um, there's so many things out there that players that are youth players right now. Um, I think it's a good idea to, to play a little indoor and play a little outdoor. I think they can help benefit the uh, the skill set of any any player. Uh, it definitely helped a, a guy like Preki. You bring that up. The guy played indoor and had the incredible tight moves and tight spaces, and then he goes and plays in the EPL for Everton, I think for a few years, and then played for the national team outdoors, you know, for the United States. Um, I think a lot of the stuff that Preki brings to the game, you know, a fair amount of it, I'm sure was brought from indoor. Our mighty thanks to Rob for that wonderful throwback to Portland's indoor soccer 1990s decade fascinating stuff we love uncovering all that kind of stuff uh, and hopefully more of it out there to be found uh, you can follow rob's uh video offering some really good game coverage and footage and uh, other kinds of stuff in soccer portland in particular at r hawksford 5081 on YouTube. So that's R, the letter R, Hawksford, H-A-W-K-S-F-O-R-D, 5081, at R, Hawksford, 5081, on YouTube. Of course, while you're online, come on to our website at uh, goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, we're always there and available for you 24-7, 365. Uh, every stinking episode we've ever done and will do, God willing, 
uh, will be placed there for your enjoyment. You'll see some great photography that supports that show uh, from our social media feeds for each week's show. Uh, we have uh, various books and movies and other forms of media from our various guests who may be hawking such. Uh, just click conveniently from those links to uh, our Amazon site and you will uh, get uh, the best, quickest service as well as you will get not only the best price, but uh, give us a couple of shekels of referral love. We appreciate that. Uh, and it's also a great way to kind of uh, point your friends to what this show is all about before you and they subscribe or follow us wherever you find podcasts. We're available everywhere you can find them, for God's sakes. Uh, and if you can rate and review them, hopefully positively, uh, in those places, please do so. We appreciate that tremendously. Uh, would you like us, uh, like us, sure. Would you like us to send email to you? Well, I don't think that's uh, most efficient, but how about you sending email to us? Well, you could do that. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's what uh, Rob did. And he, look, he found himself on the show for God's sake. So who knows? You never know. Uh, let's see. You can also follow us on social media. Uh, let's see on Facebook. You'll find us at good seats still available on Instagram. You'll find us at good seats still available. And on the Twitter, you'll find us at good seats still. Thank you to Jerry Payne. Of course, Jerry Payne, audio excellence. Once again, stepping up, doing a fine job as always hugely appreciated. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Until then, take care, stay safe, and enjoy summer. I think it's on its way. Bye. Bye.